And a pleasant good evening, Mets fans. A very pleasant good evening because it is finally mercifully over. Welcome back to the Pleasant Good Evening podcast. Joined by uh, Jack Hendon. As always, my name is Sam Lebowitz. And Jack, the weird 60-game sprint that we are calling a season concluded today with the Mets taking a 15-5 loss in Washington, D.C. They lost the final three in that series. I watched every single uh, unpleasant pitch of that nearly four-hour game, and I think you did too. That I'm not going to mince words. It sucked, and I think yeah. both of us are pretty happy that this season is, is over now. Mm-hmm. I had a whole case of ham in my fridge before the game started. And by the time the game had ended, I had eaten all the ham. <laughs> um, that ham went about pain. The ham went as did the Mets pitching staff. Uh, just a lot of pitchers used. I think all but four of the pitchers currently on the active roster got into the game today. Uh, Seth Lugo didn't make it out of the second. Uh, Jason Shreve pitched. Wasn't great. Uh, who followed Shreve up? It was Mats. They they brought Mats out and, or no, it was Brock. It was, yeah, it was Brock. Brock. It was Brock. It was it was Brad Brock, who for the second it time was. this season faced three batters in a relief appearance and walked all three. Brad Brock, I never want to watch you pitch again. I know you're a Mets fan growing up. I know you're you're probably a good dude, Jersey guy. Leave, please, just please. Um, he's making yeah. the most out of the three batters. You can't really blame him for that. He's he's, you know. He's he's showing what you can do with this three batter rule. Really, he's pushing it to his limits. I uh, applaud him. Does it count as facing three batters if none of the three batters are official play are official at bats? It shouldn't. Uh, I think I think they should strike it from the record. I'm cool with that. I think I think they should take this game in particular and strike it from the records burn it please all the tapes of it except for the pete alonzo hitting two home runs that was pretty cool i think it's great that pete remembered how to hit baseballs hard again uh at the worst possible time but 16 homers this year for pete um but we're not going to talk about i mean we people have talked about pete to death uh it's a sophomore slump i'm not really worried i don't think anybody's really worried except for frank fleming but just yeah, a rough week. Just a rough weekend. The Mets won the opener in this four-game set on Thursday. They were looking like they were in mathematical position where a playoff berth was still a possibility. And in retrospect, if they could have won the final three games, they would be in the playoffs. And instead, they lost the last three games in a row, and all three of those losses uh, sucked. Um, but that's how it that's how it be, I guess. Uh, a fitting end to the Wilpon era of baseball in Queens. Um, the uh, the Brewers made the playoffs at twenty nine and thirty one. So the Mets at twenty six and thirty four. They just needed to win three more games, and they would have been in. Yeah, it's uh, pretty cruel that it, it it went down that way. I mean, the whole series, I think, we're kind of. It was kind of foolish of us to believe that uh, they were going to put this together at the beginning. I mean, David Peterson had a really good start on Thursday night. He went seven innings for the first time, uh, only walked uh, one batter, uh, you know. But I think after that, it just 
kind of it, it kind of tumbled out of control. Um, I mean, Jacob Degrom's not winning the Cy Young. We know that much. He didn't really look great. We kind of got uh, schooled by Andrew Stevenson, uh, among few other real figures. We got beat by Dollar Store Owen Wilson. Uh, just really sucks. The pitching didn't really have it. Uh, you know today what? either. I'm glad that uh, LSU lost to Mississippi State in football on Saturday because Andrew Stevenson went to LSU and Andrew Stevenson is officially, I think, both of us on our on our list. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so I I wish him nothing but pain in misery while watching LSU football this season. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, DeGrom, he came out firing bullets. Like, he looked as good as he usually looks, uh, at least in the first inning or two. Uh, and then he hung a slider up to Stevenson. I mean, this, he was throwing 102 in the first inning. He had never thrown a pitch 102 miles an hour with 93-mile-an-hour changeups and 95-mile-an-hour sliders. And then he, he hung one to Stevenson when the Mets were up 2 nothing, And Stevenson put in the seats. And kind of from there, he, I guess, unraveled a little bit. He was having trouble putting guys away. The pitch count was way high. Yeah. He struck out 10 batters, and he, for the second straight year, has the National League strikeout crown. But uh, he, he needed to throw seven shutout innings to really be in the conversation because Trevor Bauer's ERA is 1.73. Yeah, and there's no catch in that. There's no catch in that. If DeGrom had thrown seven shutout innings, it was a doubleheader game, so he could only go seven. Yeah. Um, his ERA would have bottomed out at 1.93, so a fifth of a run off of Bowers. But instead, it's uh, closer to the mid-twos because he gave three runs over five. Yeah. I think it's 2.38 or so. Yeah. It's oh. still – I mean, it's still a, a great number. It's – you know, the other thing about it was he sort of after that rip-roaring start kind of – I mean, he kind of went out – those last few at-bats in the fifth inning were, I mean, I don't like to use the word, like, torturous, but, I mean, it was kind of torturous watching it because I really just wanted him to, to to finish with, you know, a, a clean strikeout, and there were passed balls, there were missed fastballs way up in the zone. He wound up finishing with, I think, 115 pitches in five innings. Um, a lot of guys who had good seasons who I think didn't really get uh, – the fair finish that they deserved. I mean, it wasn't just DeGrom, obviously. Conforto was placed on the injured list prior to the series with a hamstring strain that, uh, you know, sidelined him for good. Andres Jimenez strained his oblique earlier in the DeGrom game. And then, I mean, we didn't even mention Dom Smith running face first into a wall. And, uh, I mean, we don't have a diagnosis yet. He finished that game under his own power, but... uh, the Mets didn't give him any more rope after that, probably for good reason, you know. Um, just kind of a... Yeah. Yeah. Dom didn't play game two, and he didn't play today. He says he was good to go, but they did the smart thing in not running him out there again. Yeah, this team, they just kind of fell apart uh, health-wise over the last four or five days of the season um, with Conforto and Jimenez on the IL. Arasmo Ramirez... Got IL too, which makes me sad. Really sucked. Hey man, he finishes with an ERA under one as a New York Met this this season. So Erasmo time forever, baby. That's Uh, right. Rather die, man. Uh, We we didn't. mm -hmm. 
I just I feel for Conforto and I feel for Jimenez and I feel for Dom. They they really they were some of the the better contributors, especially Conforto and, and Dom. They were they led the offense this year, and for them to not at least kind of finish the year out in the in the lineup, it just left it's a, a bummer. It was a bummer. It left a bad taste in my mouth. As yeah. I mean, this game in general, these last couple of games left a bad taste in my mouth. The, I mean, in general too, because they were shit games. But uh, it's just—it was a sad way to kind of see the season. And I feel bad for Seth Lugo too, because the starting thing didn't work for him. His ERA was over six as a starter. His season ERA, even though it was sparkling as a reliever for the first half of the season before he joined the rotation. His season ERA finishes at 5.15, which is an ugly number. And we know Seth is a better pitcher than that. But he had a real clunker today. I think the real number that's going to come to define this season, honestly, when we look at wins and losses, and we'll talk about individual wins and losses very shortly, uh, it's going to be a stat that Gary Cohen very kindly uh, brought us after Lugo was removed from the game. Uh, The Mets played 60 games this season. Uh, in 15 of these games, uh, the starting pitcher for the Mets failed to get beyond uh, the third inning. Never completed three innings uh, in 15 of the 60 games. And I think that's a pretty strong indicator of why we're looking at a last place finish right now instead of potentially a, you know, a, a playoff team, uh, a six, seven seed, maybe, you know, at worst an eight seed. I think this team had a lot going for it, but um you need pitching. This is what happens. Yeah. This is probably, I think, I mean, I looked this up. It's the first time that they've finished and last in the division since 2003. Uh, for reference, Jesse Orozco was still pitching in the major leagues in 2003. Like, this was Mo Vaughn playing first base. I didn't even follow this team. I just learn about these guys on baseball reference kind of team. There's probably someone on that 2003 team that played the same role Rosmo Ramirez did. Uh, although I'm not going to remember a guy from 2003. Uh, there, just, will be, there will be time to remember guys later, but yeah. uh, that's did, you know, in this, with this loss to the Nationals, uh, losing the series, the Mets finished at uh, 26 and 34. And like you mentioned, this is the uh, first time that they've finished in last place in the NL East. They tied with the Nationals uh, for the division losing this series. Equal record as the Nats. First time, you said, since 2003. And kind of, a, I guess, a poetic end to the, the Wilpon era. Because the, the Wilpon's first season with team control was 2003. And so last place finishes uh, bookend the, the Wilpon era. And really, kind of an apropos way to go. This is this record, twenty six and thirty four is obviously not a good record, but I feel like when you're looking at it in a vacuum, it's like, oh, that's not awful, awful. It's a seventy win season, you know, in a full season. So you extrapolate that over over a one sixty two game season, it's a seventy and ninety two record. And talent wise, this team is better than that. Way better. Way better. You know, when, like you said, 15 times in 60 games, your starter doesn't get past the third inning, can't get nine outs. That is an issue. It's unsustainable. That's the word Gary used. Um, it's not good. It's not good. And it's not good. They were certainly in positions to win more games this year, uh, as is always the case. It's the Mets. So they had some real, real 
tough losses in there. Um, and we asked you guys last week in our mailbag uh, what you thought was the, the worst loss, what, what you thought was the one loss that you would want back if you could go and, and switch it. And we got some responses. Shout out uh, our, our friend Phil, meet Phil, uh, Mets Twitter favorite. We love Phil, uh, who said, no losses, only learning. Um, that's correct, Phil. The Mets had 26 no losses. The Mets had 26 wins and 34 learning opportunities this year. Um, that's the legacy Brody, what Van Wagenen's going to leave behind this year. 34 um, learns. Among, among many great Brody one-liners that we're going to be just... Brodyisms. Come get us. Um, yeah, so uh, let's shout out Rachel, another friend of the pod, uh, at Go Away, please. The entire Marlins series at the end of August, I believe we're that she's referring to the home series that came right after the COVID scare in August. They got shut out in both games of a doubleheader. Um, they won a game that DeGrom started that they almost blew. And then the fourth game of that series got postponed because of the uh, protests that, that went on. And yeah. then they, went, they wound up losing the, the made-up make-up game. That was a rough series, losing three or four to the Marlins team that snuck into the playoffs um that was a tough one and i think jack the next one is probably the most common answer that we got you want to go for, for that sure one? yeah uh so this was from lfgm uh at mets all day blog uh they said the blown seven to two lead against the yankees uh would have earned at least a split of that sunday doubleheader Team still was inconsistent at that point, but would have gotten to 500 with a win in that doubleheader. Instead, the team went on to lose four straight. This is sort of like the, the, I think, joke game of what will probably go down to some you know degree as a joke season. I mean, that was just that it happened against the Yankees. That it happened with one out to go. Uh, that it happened. And then immediately after they had to play another game and lost another game in extra innings in embarrassing fashion. Uh, a lot going on there, a lot to unpack. That was one of uh, one of three pretty substantially crappy losing streaks. Uh, but that one made up the longest. It was a Five total losses in a row, if you uh, include the game before that, in which Dylan Betances threw a wild pitch. Uh, it's a lot of a lot of uh, what could have been uh, packed within there, and it fittingly was capped off. The fifth loss was the game in Baltimore, where Ariel Hurado pitched, and I mean Ariel Hurado pitched. It was exactly what you could have asked for. So this was a this was a response we got a lot of. We also yeah. got a few people who mentioned the Marcelo Zuna home run in the second game of the season. But I, I think it's unfair to you know forecast a, a a missed playoff berth after the second game of the season. However much momentum we could have generated from starting the year two and zero. Uh, you right. want to take the next one? Sure, but just to to go on yeah. this one that that game was legitimately one of the worst things that I've seen in baseball in a long time. One of the worst losses that you can really imagine. I was 
at uh, I was at a Tully's. A Tully's Good Times is a it's a chain that we have up here in Central New York. Um, there's a few in Syracuse, kind of like a TGI Friday situation. If you're not familiar, they make really solid chicken tenders. I was sitting there with with a good buddy of mine, and we uh, we wanted to go. They, you know, they got TVs all up all over the place, and so we were like, let's go watch the Mets at Tully's. And so we went, uh, and just you know, we finished our meal, and we were just watching this seventh inning play out. And we were like, oh, they're going to win this game. Do you want to stick around for the second game in the doubleheader or watch some of it here? And as the game is getting blown, as they're losing this game. You know, when that the Yankees win the game and score the final run, we look at each other and we're like, "All right, let's let let's leave, let's let's yeah. walk." It was that was a rough one. Before, um, after the Diaz, uh, the pitch to Aaron Hicks, you leave before or after that? No, we lost when the winning run scored, so we 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 saw the home run. Oh and, my god! Yeah, uh, just kind of hung our heads and we're like, "All right, that's our exit cue. Let's go." Shout out PJ Clark. Follow on Twitter, the real PJ Clark, great guy. Um, great content if you're a Jets fan, especially too. He's always constantly sad about the Jets. Anyways, the um, one one more uh, response that we wanted to highlight was from Sam Brown, who is one of our colleagues at Metsmerized Online. And Sam talked about the August 14th game in Philadelphia, in which uh, the Phillies tied the game in the ninth. Uh, and Conforto made that throw to the plate to Wilson Ramos, but Ramos in the throw beat, I think it was Roman Quinn hitting home. Yeah, and Ramos just whiffed on the tag. He couldn't put the tag down, and they got swept in that series. Uh, and, you know, Sam is right. That was a rough, that was a rough series in a winnable game. And, uh, yeah, so we're, we're with you guys. 60 games and multiple losses to highlight. Yeah. That just or gut punches. Um, so that's the mailbag for this week. Thank you for your responses, and we'll keep you guys updated about future mailbags for sure. Um, let's talk about let's talk about some of the, the interesting stuff that we heard over the past couple of days, uh, especially yesterday from Rick Porcello and then today from Brandon Nimmo. They made some really interesting comments. Um, Porcello, first of all, whoa, I was really kind of blown away by his post-game presser yesterday in which he apologized, like wholeheartedly apologized to the fans and said that, you know, he's been a Mets fan for, for much of his life. And, you know, pitching for the Mets was something that he always, always wanted to do. And he feels legitimately terrible, or at least that it seemed like that. It seemed like a legitimate emotional reaction that he was not good. He recognized he wasn't good this year and he felt really bad. And I, it's the most, it's the most I've ever liked Rick Porcello, to be yeah. honest. I yeah, I I really appreciated that. It was, it was pretty. Uh, I mean, he basically carved out like two and a half minutes of the interview to basically not only apologize for the team's performance, but to you know, uh, make a point of how important he knew uh, these games were to people like us, to baseball fans who have sort of. Uh, you know, had to brood through the last six, seven months. Uh, you know, we're both college students. We've both sort of taken the brunt, or at least part of the brunt of, uh, you know, the the COVID quarantine lockdown situation, what have you. 
but there were also a lot of working people who were laid off who kind of, you know, when they were home, this was the thing that, you know, reminded them of, you know, normal life when they had work and they could come home and watch these games, uh, you know, experiencing that with their family who were all home with them. Uh, it, it does hit a lot different when you're watching teams that are playing good baseball and their winning games are supposed to win. And I, you know, I mean, he really, he really looked emotional. He looked completely zapped. I think he really, I'd wager that Porcello really wants to come back next year. Uh, he probably has a chip on his shoulder just about the way things went. I don't know personally if I'm uh, sold on where he would fit in this rotation, if he'd fit at all. But um, this is, I think that interview, honestly, especially in what's been a really emotional time the last six months and a, a real time for reflection, especially, you know, when it comes to sports and the role they play in our lives. Uh, it's it's something that I'm definitely going to remember him by, probably more so than the performances, because it wasn't just his fault anyway. No, yeah. I mean, it, it, to me, it, it like humanized him more than anything that I've seen from him. Um, I mean, he had like he had one good start. As a Met, that one game in Washington where he came up big, everything else was pretty mediocre or bad, just plain bad. I know that some two good starts, but they were both against Washington. I mean, it's you know, it, it's kind of yeah, the side uh, point. Yeah, I mean, the ERA was ugly. He knows that the uh, the fifth, his fifth really was pretty good because he just didn't give up that many home runs and he honestly didn't even walk that many guys. He just gave up a lot of hits. So yeah. the fifth. His fifth was generally pretty positive, um, which is weird. But, you know, I mean, credit to him because it humanized him. And it, it made me feel for him. Because sometimes you forget that these guys are people. They're not just robots that throw baseballs. He is. This is a, a guy who has an emotional connection to this franchise. And I'm, I am sure that he wanted nothing more than to put this team on his back every fifth day and shove... But he's he just didn't he just didn't and, and I mean I don't I don't want him back on this team as as a pitcher next year I don't want him back as a player but my respect for him uh, as a as a man and as a person is significantly higher than uh, than it was and um, let's talk about uh, you want to talk about Brandon Nimmo next or do you want to talk about uh, Luis Rojas because he made some comments too. I think the Rojas stuff is probably interesting uh, just while we're on the subject of who comes back next year, uh, because he told people today in a Zoom interview, Zoom conference, that he was pretty confident in his job security, figured he was going to, you know, he's, he's assuming he'll be back next year. He's, you know, not preparing for other, you know, to hear otherwise, whoever the next general manager is, who never, you know, whoever the next owner is, although we know who the next owner is going to be. Uh, and we'll get to that in a second. But I, you know, I I have my own opinions about a lot of the decisions that Luis Rojas made this year. And I think a lot of them did important games. I also think that uh, there have been other Met teams that have had good managers that have struggled to this exact tune in 60 games. This was sort of a fixture in the Bobby Valentine Mets teams is that they always kind of stumbled out of the gate and then turned something on in the summer. And I'm not, you know, that's, that's not, it's kind of a loose comparison and it's not like, you know, Rojas will be Bobby Valentine, but we should still remember, I think that he is somebody who has worked with 
virtually every homegrown player that's currently on this roster. He's seen all of them grow and succeed. Uh, he knows their strengths. Uh, I think, you know, in some instances, he probably doesn't know their weaknesses, or at least he doesn't commit to making the right decisions around their weaknesses. I think sometimes he is a little too hesitant to pull guys who don't have it or lift guys for pinch hitters. I think he sort of is a homer when it comes to that. But uh, I think that admittedly on borrowed time next year, I don't, you know, I, I'm not saying he deserves the job until, you know, he proves definitively he's bad at his job. I mean, if the team has the same results next year, I don't think he should be here. But I think that uh, it would also probably affect the clubhouse a little bit if, someone who they had worked with for so long um, and that I think grown, you know, developed a lot of respect for uh, had their skipper taken away from them. So I'm, I'm firmly in the camp. Uh, it's really difficult to make any broad uh, like job, like, excuse me, but I, I was going to say it's, it's really difficult to make these broad sweeping judgments off of a, a short season like this, and they're his first 60 games as a manager. You can't really make judgments off of two months uh, for a manager. He's, he's a young guy. I think it's important that he stays, is what I really want to make clear. I think with this roster as it's constructed right now, the core is still young, and they all know him, and they know him well. Yeah. It's vital, I think, for this clubhouse that he... Is, is there, at least for next year, that there is this consistent uh, piece leading the way. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that he had a good year managing. It, it got ugly at some points. It did. There was some pitching stuff where he left guys in too long. There was some hitting stuff where guys like maybe Wilson Ramos got at bats that they shouldn't have gotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that kind of situation. But he's, he learned something this year. He absolutely learned something this year. Uh, not even joking about the Brody comments about how. He- <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say he we he learned a lot. He you know no go on. I'm well, sorry. I'm a, I'm an asshole. He he did learn a lot though. Not like all joking aside is he, there's no better way to learn than by doing. And and I think he did learn a lot. And I uh, I think that him and Jeremy Hefner specifically need to be on this coaching staff next year just for the sake of consistency. And also, I liked a lot of what Hefner did, uh, specifically with him. I don't really think there's been a lot of conversations about whether they would replace him. He got handed a shitty pitching staff. Really bad pitching staff, yeah. I think I would really like to see what these guys do uh, with a full deck of cards, with a good analytics staff, good you know self-scouting uh, you know foundation that they could actually build on. Uh, I think that that would be really... I think that would really benefit uh, Rojas probably to have more to work with. Uh, I think at the very least we should see how he does with, uh, you know, a general manager who probably is a bit more experienced, qualified. Uh, a lot of different words we could use for the yeah. new GM. But um, yeah, I mean, I think Rojas could probably his bullpen management could probably benefit if, if he didn't have to get six outs or six six innings from his bullpen twice a week. That's true. Um, That's and then with with Hefner, Hefner, there's you keep Hefner around for two reasons, and those reasons are Edwin Diaz and David Peterson. Yeah, both of them had very solid years, and I, I think that a lot of credit for that, especially with Diaz, 
uh, goes to Hefner. I think that, I mean, Diaz's ERA finished with an ERA under two. He finished with, like, uh, like two strikeouts per inning. Like, yeah. Edwin was legitimately good this year. Um, still not the guy that they thought they were going to get, but way closer to that guy. Uh, and the value, certainly, he certainly builds his value back up this year. Um, and then uh, Peterson finishing with two really, really fantastic outings yeah. against the Braves and Nationals. And pitching probably above what some you know prospect guys and experts would have assumed. Definitely looking more like a two in those two starts than a four. Uh, so good, good for David Peterson. And then uh, we did want to touch on the Brandon Nimmo comments. Because yeah. he, he was asked today about the ownership change. And he had some really fascinating answers. This is like two weeks in a row that Brandon has kind of turned some heads with his answers to stuff. Uh, he said Quarantine's that he's you know, been getting to him. He said that he was he's he's glad that uh, the team is going to a Mets fan. And Twitter had quite the reaction to that because it was like, okay, whoa, is he trying to say anything here? And I think it's the same situation as as. Uh, last week, what his comments on Darno were about, oh, we wish we had a guy like that on our team. It's I don't think it's Nimmo meaning anything by these comments. I think that's just Brandon saying what Brandon thinks. Yeah, it's Brandon was probably briefed on Cohen and, and was told, oh, he grew up a huge Mets fan and he has lots of money. And, and Brandon probably thought, gee golly, that's yuck, that's great here. <laughs> Shucks, I'd like a Mets fan. I mean, the thing is, Fred Wilpon, if we are going to, you know, be act you know if we're gonna if we're gonna be accurate here Fred Wilpon is a Brooklyn Dodgers fan he grew up a Brooklyn Dodgers fan he constructed a, a shrine to the Brooklyn Dodgers uh in you know in the place of Shea Stadium I love City Field but it is Ebbets Field reconstructed um yeah. and Jeff Wilpon is I'm sure in many respects a Met fan uh he is also a Jeff Wilpon fan uh, which is sort of, you know, I think it has created conflicts in the front office. Uh, and I think having someone that I think has always, at least says he's always been committed to, you know, just watching the Mets succeed uh, will probably lend to having a better front office. I mean, we really don't know the full scope of like what Cohen knows, doesn't know. But I think bringing Sandy Alderson back as team president is probably a a pretty encouraging first step and a you know pretty uh deciding uh you know statement in what uh in what he foresees the Met front office looking like and we should probably get into some of those candidates that Alderson as team president is ultimately going to pick cuz it's a pretty you know sweeping list right now it's a lot of candidates a lot of guys uh only some of whom have actually been linked to the Mets a lot of whom are just guys we've been speculating on or you know, hope will come over. Uh, yeah. So the the Sandy coming back. Um, this is assuming that Cohen gets approved. Uh, excuse me, that he would take over as team president if Cohen gets approved. This, in my eyes, really sets aside some of the doubt that Cohen wouldn't get approved because Sandy Alderson is a very, very highly respected figure in baseball. So much so that when the Mets had that turmoil in 2009-2010, Alderson was the Major League Baseball appointed pick. They said, here, fix this, because he's that guy. 
so this legitimizes the ownership change and people, you know, some of the reporters were reporting that this is a, a check mark in Cohen's favor and really helps him with the owners because uh, it sets aside some of the, the, the doubts that they had about him being an owner about, oh, you just throw money all over the place or, you know, um, you know, he's, he, he doesn't really care about running a, a tight ship, but having Sandy on board fixes that kind of stuff. We have to assume that if he's bringing in his own team president, he wants to bring in a new GM. I think that's a fair yeah. assumption to make. I won't be completely surprised if he keeps Brody for one more year, just from a transitional uh, aspect of, of wanting some consistency from this year to next year, because there is going to be a lot of organizational change. So I think that some things are going to stay the same. Brody could keep his job. I don't think he would. And so I, we, we put up a list um, that we're going we're gonna to go run through pretty quickly that we want to touch upon. Uh, of mostly, it's mostly speculation. Uh, very much mostly speculation. I think two of these names, maybe three, have actually been uh, tied to the Mets for yeah. this job for this year. Because uh, some of these names were tied to the team in 2018 when they hired Brody originally. But for this particular news cycle, I think only three of the eight or nine names that we put together have actually been tied uh, to the team recently. Uh, I, I I did a fair amount of research on some of these names this week because I, I hate to self-plug, but I put out an article. It's a good article. Yeah, thank you. It's a good article. <laughs> uh, you guys should read it. Yeah, on Metsmerize this week, talking about some names that could make sense, some realistic names, because everyone's throwing out, oh, I want Theo Epstein, I want Brian Cashman. Let's be realistic, that's not happening. Uh, and so I put together a list of names, and you guys can check that out on Mesmerize. But um, I think pretty much all of the names that I used are on this list, with the exception of maybe one or two. Let's start with David Stearns, who is the uh, president of baseball operations and general manager for the Brewers. He is my ideal pick. He is the perfect fit. Grew up a Mets fan, worked in this front office for a year as an intern. Omar and I in 2008 wanted to keep him. The Wilpons said, we don't have a spot for him. We're not going to open a spot for him. Let him go elsewhere. Uh, and that was kind of, that was it. Now he's 35 and he's one of the best GMs in baseball. It'll be tough to lure him away from the Brewers. I don't think they're going to be able to. Uh, but he is pretty much my ideal pick. And uh, if they don't get him, his right-hand man, I think, is an excellent uh, second option, and that's Matt Arnold, who worked for nine years in the Rays system. He's 40, and he's the senior VP and assistant GM to David Stearns in Milwaukee. I really like Arnold. I think he is maybe at the top of my list right now. I don't know about you, if you 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 um, you know have any preferences right now, but if it's not Stearns, I really like Arnold personally. Yeah, I think Arnold's probably more realistic just because he's served as a vice president and an assistant uh, most of his time. I think where Stearns, it, you know, he did intern with the Mets. I think he is, from what I've read, he's a, you know, he kind of grew up a Met fan and he'd love to, you know, I'm sure it would mean a lot to him to contribute to a Met team that would actually have his name on it, so to speak. But he also would need to leave a pretty comfortable position in Milwaukee that he probably won't because it's a downgrade. But, you know, Arnold, meanwhile, kind of, you know, he would be, 
you know, moving up in the industry. He'd go from a, you know, a vice president to someone in the chair, someone who also, you know, also be working, you know, under Sandy Alderson. That's a pretty, you know, that's, that's always a pretty flattering job to, to have. I mean, I'd love to work for Sandy Alderson, Sandy, you know, please, please hire me. Uh, Let's run through uh, a couple more names on the list that we have. One of the names that I I left off my article was Dan Kendrovitz, who is uh, a Cubs assistant GM and has also worked in the Oakland system. Pretty young guy. Heard good things about him. Um, Definitely a a kind of a future GM type. Um, Another one that I used in the article was Jared Porter, who's the Diamondbacks assistant GM, who also a lot to like. Um, When I was doing my research, I mostly kept it to younger guys. Because I think that's the way the industry is heading right now. Analytically savvy, younger, well-college-educated guys. Um, who, someone who also fits that mold is Mike Chernoff, who is actually the Indians' general manager, not the assistant GM. He is the GM. Uh, and he is a, also a local guy from New Jersey uh, with connections to the Mets. His dad is the big boss at WFAN. Uh, oh, boy. If- Holds up. Chernoff um, is he? He there was some light buzz for Chernoff in 2018 to the Mets job. They offered him an interview, and Chernoff declined. So maybe he wants to stay stay put in Cleveland, or maybe he just didn't want to work under the Wilpons at that point. Um, so those are those are the younger names on the list uh, with Stearns, Arnold, Kantrovitz, Porter, and Chernoff. Um, one name just to keep an eye on is this is one that I, there, let's a couple names that have actually been linked to the Mets. Uh, our own Michael Mayer uh, from Mets Marais, our boss, who's got sources for days, says that the Mets are interested in Bobby Heck, who is currently a special assistant to the GM for the Rays. He was the head scout. He was the scouting director, I believe, for the Astros between 2007 and 2012. And again, has been linked to the Mets in 2018. And apparently, um, you know, sources say that Steve Cohen is familiar with Bobby Heck and is uh, a fan of his. And then if I was a Batman, I would say that this next name that I'm going to mention probably has the best odds right now um, is Billy Owens. Yeah. who is assistant GM for the A's, who's been with the A's for the last 19 seasons. And he's got that handicap because, well, first of all, Mike, Mark Feinzan, uh, who's a reporter, reported that Owens had some buzz for this job. But um, as a guy who's worked with the A's for nearly 20 years, he's got, uh, a, a, there's a level of familiarity with, with him that for Sandy Alderson, because Alderson, for the past year, has worked in the A's uh, front office again as a uh, uh, an advisor, and obviously used to work at, for the A's as the general manager before Billy Bean. Um, they overlapped slightly, I believe, Owens and, and Alderson, but at least this last year with with Alderson as an advisor in Oakland, definitely would give Owens a, uh, a, a favorable advantage over some other candidates because Sandy knows what he'd be getting with Billy Owens. And also, he's just a very popular figure in, in you know, the front office business. People just seem to really respect him and like him. Yeah. Uh, and so He's a be... podcaster himself, isn't he? He's Is been he? like, I... a, yeah, he's done, I don't think he runs his own podcast, but he he's a regular on, 
uh, Fine Zan's podcast he's guested. He's done some work, I think, around the league. He's one of those guys who does a very good job, I think, breaking down and, you know, lending access to the kind of kinds of uh, tools and, and, you know, analysis methods uh, that, that front offices are using, especially the more advanced front offices. I really like this this ledger of teams that we're looking at, though, between Oakland and, you know, Tampa Bay. I mean, we're looking at guys who have, you know, Milwaukee teams, you know, and, and markets that have always been operating on a, you know, pretty limited budgets, pretty limited, you know, capital. And, you know, none of these teams have churned out world champions, but they've they've still done a pretty good job making something of you know very little and i think actually being able to make something out of already something could be really fun especially with the the scouting foundation the mets have right now with you know mark tremuda and tommy tanus i think bobby heck especially is like a he'd be a huge addition because he you know he's sort of done the same work they've done but he's done it on i think a probably a much more advanced uh platform working with the rays because they kind of have the they 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 basically have the codes on everyone they never invest in a guy who at least with pitching they always seem to get it right i think that'd be dangerous if he came to this organization yeah uh heck and owens are both kind of um player development and scouting oriented guys those are their those are their skill sets because heck was the scouting director for the astros for for five years and then owens for 12 years before he became an assistant GM was director of player personnel and had coached in the minor league system. And um, from what I could garner from my research, his strength seems to be uh, player development and scouting. A couple more more names, just keep an eye on Joel Sherman, Dave Dombrowski to the Mets, which we don't really need to talk about it in too too much depth. I don't think that Dombrowski is going to be the guy kind of scares me personally. Yeah, not a fan. Uh, I mean, I've seen what he's done for multiple other teams. He's he, he's brought penance to Detroit and to Boston, but at what cost? He always um, he he he's const he's every job he's left he's left in a I think a worse state than he founded. Yeah, or at least a a, a yeah. It's I'm trying kinda, to find the words, but. Dombrowski's MO is that he will sell off prospect talent at no with no remorse. He he does not hold on to prospects. He does um, the most he, that he can with money that he's given, but that's sort of where the buck stops. But in doing so, yes, he puts a winning product out on the team, but when he leaves his job, it tends to be a kind of um, you know, salt, you know, burning the ground behind you kind of thing. Uh, and so it just kind of scares me as a prospect. Yeah, the Tigers guy. are still recovering. Yeah, yeah, very much so still recovering. Detroit's in shambles. Boston, I mean, Bloom has had to tear down, basically. That's how bad it's, you know, it's looked. And but, then the other thing we're just going to touch on is today Billy Epler got fired from his job as GM of the Angels. There's been no reason to believe that Epler could be in the running for the Mets job, but he's another GM that's out there, and... Honestly, this was kind of a surprising move because I never saw Epler as a bad GM. He's made some good moves. Just never kind of things never really gelled out there in Anaheim. He signed Trout to a lifetime extension. He 
got Otani over. Uh, the Rendon contract is working out for them. Just there were some good moves. Uh, the Dylan Bundy trade worked out as well as they could have hoped it did. Just um, I, I guess Artie Moreno out there wanted a change because sick of putting a you know uh, a losing team on the, on the field. Mike Trout's made the playoffs once in his career, um, but that's that. Um, we were going to talk about playoff predictions, but we're running a little bit long. So I think rather than go in depth here, let's just touch upon what we think is going to happen. Jack. Yep. World uh, Series. World Series matchup. Go for it. Who do you think is going to go? I've got the Dodgers from the NL. They're sort of a cut above everyone. Uh, AL is kind of dicey. Uh, I think I'm going to. You know, I'm going to go with the new team here. I'm going to go with the White Sox. I know that they're kind of ending on a, you know, a sour note, but sometimes teams do that and then they surprise people. And this is a team that has already surprised people a lot. Uh, I think the Dodgers are going to beat them in five games. I don't think it's really going to be much of a contest, but I think this is going to be when we look back on, I think, the growth that the White Sox have made in the last, you know, year and a half. This is going to be like the the linchpin season that sort of gets them into a, you know, a, a state to continue building upward. I think that they're going to surprise a lot of people. I think it'll be close with the Yankees, but I think once they get past them, uh, it'll be a, it'll be a little bit easier for sure. Okay. Interesting. Interesting pick. Uh, I, again, I agree with you with the Dodgers. I think that the Dodgers are the team to beat. They're the class of the entire playoffs. Um, Really good team, really good baseball team. They won 43 games in the 60-game season. They were on pace for 116 wins yeah. in a full season. Really good. Um, doesn't always translate into the playoffs. Anything could happen. Yeah. So, my first of all, I want to say that last week when we predicted the rest of the NL playoff picture, I got it correct. Mm-hmm. I said that four teams from the NL Central would make the playoffs, along with the uh, Marlins and Braves in the East and Padres and, and Dodgers at West, and I was correct. So, pat myself on the back a little bit there. However, do I think how it's you know, how do I think it's going to shake out? I think my dream World Series, just from a fun aspect, is the Padres against either the A's or the Rays. That'd be um, fun. Would be electric. It's the Rays against the Padres or the A's against the Padres. That'd be electric. Do I think it's going to happen? Not a chance in hell. Uh, the A's. I'm a little worried about them without Matt Chapman. Jake Lamb is going to be their third baseman in the playoffs. He's been he's been pretty good for them, but um, he had a home run today on the last day of the season. So I'm going to go. He's got with, a shelf life. I'm going to go with Rays and Dodgers, and I'm going to say that the Rays are going to win in seven. Wow, they have a I mean, they have a pretty talented group right now for sure. It's. Not out of the question. And the Dodgers don't always finish what they start. That's kind of the caveat. Postseason is like that. It'd be the Andrew Friedman Bowl. It would be the Andrew Friedman Bowl. All right. So. That would be awesome. That would be electric. And I'm, I'm rooting for it. Um, let's go to our remembering some guys. And on this day in Mass history, um, let's remember some guys, Jack. Yeah. I'm going to do a weird one because it's not really a guy that uh, you go back in the archives to remember. I'm just going to, because when it comes down to it, this is going to be a season that has a lot of guys that we're just going to remember out of nowhere. Um, 
I'm going to take... I'm going to go with uh, Guillermo Heredia, who had a really, really good series this week and who probably won't play in a Met game again. Uh, probably doesn't have much of a future in the major leagues. He's on the wrong side of you know 20. He's never been much of a slugger. He's always been an average to below average fielder. Uh, but they have a lot of you know outfielders that just kind of show up the last month of the season. Uh like, you know, like Aaron Altair and Nori Aoki before him, uh, Guillermo Radia will last. He's the guy that we will be remembering for a while. He homered today. Forgot. Heredia is a, Honestly, I kind of felt like Heredia kind of played decent for the Mets the last couple weeks. That no, it wasn't bad. Wrong of me. Uh, he hit two home runs in you know, seven games. Uh, I will always remember Guillermo Heredia because... When the Mets brought him up, I was like, oh, this guy's not a good player. He's terrible. And I was in the newsroom of the TV station that I work at here at school. And uh, we had the, the Mets game on against the Rays earlier this week. And Heredia was batting. And I, point, I pointed to one of my friends uh, in the station who's a Rays fan. And I said, hey, Guillermo Heredia is batting. Former Ray playing the Rays right now. If he hits a home run right now, I will go across the street to the cafeteria and I will buy you food. And not 15 seconds later, he had a home run. I did it to myself, completely unprompted. I had no reason to say that. But, you know, it, the entire station lit up, all 18 of us that are allowed in the station at any given point because of COVID distancing rules. But just an electric moment. I will never forget that. You should have um, turned that around on him. You should have told him, You're, I, you got to buy me food. That's your player who, who just burned you. I would have leveraged the crap out of that. You know what? In retrospect, maybe I should have. For my remembering, some guys, a guy, uh, I'm not doing someone from this season, although I don't blame you for doing that. That's fine. Last day of this vibes had me thinking about other last games of the season for the Mets. And so I went to a reliever who gave up a home run in 2008 in the last game at Shea Stadium. To Wes Helms, the inning. Yeah. Left-hander, never really, never really pitched again much uh, effectively. Uh, Scott Schoenweiss. Yeah. Who was, by and large, good that year. 3-3-4 ERA in 73 games in 2008. Uh, bounced back from kind of a, a, a you know, not as effective 2007 with the Mets. Had a nice long 12-year career. As a as a uh, starter's career as a starter, and then the last half of his career as a reliever, um, he's pretty active on Twitter too. Yeah, is it really him though? I mean, I'm I don't think it's him, but you think it's then again, him? maybe he has Honestly, his moments where he doesn't seem like it's really Scott Schoenweiss. Well, today I'm remembering Scott Schoenweiss, yeah. and we are also in a similar vein, but in a much much a more positive note. We're also remembering what happened on this day in 2008, um, the day before Sean White gave up that season-ending home run to Wes Helms, yeah. which I think Luis Ayala followed it up, and he came in there for the next batter and also gave up a home run. Yeah, it was Wes Helms and then Dan Ugla. Sean Weiss was like lights out against left-handed hitters. I don't know why Jerry Manuel kept him in for a righty, but... Uh, With a righty yeah. in the... Yeah, exactly. Although Ayala wasn't very good with the Mets either. It was, you know, it was kind of 
pick your poison, but yeah, the game uh, before, game before Johan, game before that. I mean Santana. So basically, for context, the Mets needed to win uh, to stay in the race. They were a game behind the Philadelphia Phillies in the NL East, and the Phillies would wind up clinching later that night. But they were also a game behind the Milwaukee Brewers, and if the Mets had lost that game, they would have been in deep trouble because a Brewers win would have eliminated them altogether. It's the penultimate game of the season. They bring Johan Santana out uh, on three days rest with a sore left knee. This is the first time Santana had ever done three days rest since 2003. I looked this up. This was like you got to go all the way back to when he was a reliever with the Twins before he was even like Johan Santana. But he comes out and he has, in my opinion, uh, his best outing as a Met, even better than the no-hitter. Uh, nine innings, nine strikeouts, uh, three walks, three hits, no runs, 117 pitches, every strikeout. I mean, we can we can link the video in the pod, but if you you know, if you go back and watch each strikeout from that game, because they have a little reel of it, like with every one of them, it's colder and rainier out and it seems like a more dire situation than the, the than the strikeout before it each one the shea stadium just like erupts each strikeout um you can't even hear gary cohen making some of the calls it was it's it's a video that i sometimes uh i i i just i mean i'll watch it from time to time just to sort of meditate on it almost it's like you got to close your eyes and watch it it's probably the start that that best exemplified how exciting Shea Stadium could be when a pitcher had it Uh, at least in my lifetime it was something else Sam I know you didn't watch the Mets a whole lot that year relative to the next years but it was it was a huge deal. And the Brewers lost later that night. So they tied for the wild card. And then what happened the next day happened. But it certainly didn't seem like the Mets were going to uh, fall out of it anytime soon. Yeah. Really exciting. Uh, yeah. That also just makes me think of John or uh, Tom Glavin to the previous year, which yeah. someone brought that up to me and I, I almost punched him. Someone brought that up to me the other day and I, that Tom Glavin started point, you know, seven. Yeah. Just awful. Anyways, that's all the time we have for episode six of the Pleasant Good Evening podcast. Uh, um, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Uh, lots to talk about today. And I hope you guys enjoyed. Um, that's all we got. And keep, keep your eyes on our Twitter. Make sure to follow us at PGEpod underscore MMO for more content. We're trying to make that Twitter account more active over the course of the week. Um Playoffs this week. Let's go. AL playoffs start Tuesday. AL playoffs start Wednesday. Uh, very excited for playoff baseball, even in this kind of dumb, kind of stupid, very confusing format. For Jack Hendon and the rest of my colleagues at Metsmerized Online, my name is Sam Lovewitz and Mets fans. Have a pleasant evening. Thank you.